Fortunately and unfortunately, Aaron only lived 8 months plus 100 precious minutes. Aaron will not grow up. Aaron will not get to be that sibling for Gabriel running around the yard, skiing through the forest, or paddling down rivers. Aaron will not be the son with whom we can share years of memories and maybe have cared for us into our old age. Fortunately, Aaron was never hurt by this world and never can or will be. But just the same, Aaron will never be able to go and make an impact in this world himself. And that's why I'm speaking to you tonight. I want the entire world to know that Aaron, a helpless little baby that lived merely a hundred minutes, was important to this world. Aaron Isaiah Robert Peters Samulek was born on Father's Day, June 19, 2016, and spent 100 precious minutes with his family after birth. Aaron, this is for you. So, my name is Rachel Samulek. I am a mom, a bereaved mom, a librarian, and I would say an outdoor adventurer. Uh, I've been married to my husband for six years, and we have three children, I guess. So we have Gabriel, who's four. We have Aaron, who passed away two years ago, shortly after birth. And I am currently pregnant, 35 and a half weeks, with another little boy. My name is Rob. I am married to Rachel. Um, I'm a nursing student at the University of Ottawa. Hopefully I'll be graduating next year. Um, I'm also a brief father. I've known a lot of people who have uh, experienced loss, um, or who have gone through um, abortions, but actually probably the first time that I'm sitting down with people who are wanting and willing to talk about it, because it's usually when we talk about pregnancy loss, you know, um, it's such a, t it's a topic that people tiptoe around a lot, and we don't know how to talk about it, but we can, like, why don't we start, like, with just kind of that piece about why do you think it's so difficult um, in circles to talk about loss. So I think, um, so our first loss was actually at 10 weeks with our first pregnancy. Mm -hmm. So five years ago this month, mm -hmm. uh, September, which is crazy to me when we had that loss. We had discussed this before the podcast started, but at that time the doctor didn't give us any information. So we went in for our dating ultrasound, found out there was no heartbeat and we were sent home. Mm -hmm. And I think the thing is that uh, maybe it's not just medical professionals but people aren't comfortable talking about it mm -hmm. and they also don't know what resources are out there so the fact that you know even though it's a loss at 10 weeks to a mom who already has this baby's whole life planned in her head it doesn't matter how early the loss is mm -hmm. and we don't feel comfortable acknowledging that that is a loss mm -hmm. even at that early stage and clinically it, because it's a loss the baby is not considered viable mm -hmm. and that's it so, to the obstetrician, it doesn't. Uh, the mother's health is important, mm -hmm. and as long as the mother has a safe, delivers safely, then he's fine. But it doesn't necessarily give the resources along with mm -hmm. it. And they may not necessarily call it a baby yet, even. No. Sometimes they stick to the word fetus or embryo mm -hmm. or what, whatever. I think it'd still be technically embryo at that embryo, stage. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So that almost somehow people think, oh, well, I can remove myself then. From yeah. yeah, and I think for each person it's different too. I think, you know, what my experience is given our losses, so we've True. had two miscarriages and the loss of our son after birth. After birth. Um, I think, you know, each person experiences those losses differently. So for someone who has experienced multiple losses, you know, it's not like one is more worthy than the other, mm -hmm. but 
it's just a different experience. For some people, they would say the loss is, you know, I'm, I don't want to talk about it or I'm okay with it or I, I don't want to think of it as it even some people say, well, that already was something that I was thinking about. Yeah. And yeah, and so people experience loss very differently. And even some people, they try to shove it down and they try to say, oh, it didn't happen. But it did happen and it will come back in some way later. Yeah, and I think that's the one thing that we learned with our pregnancy with our next child, Gabriel. We made it to that 10-week point and I was like, okay, we're great. Like We had 10-week ultrasound, everything looked amazing, and so we were good to go. And that's not necessarily the case as we learned later on with Aaron. And I think, you know, as a society, we are too easy to just push those feelings aside. So there are different resources out there. In Ontario, we're very lucky. There's the Pregnancy and Infant Loss Network. Mm -hmm. And so they're a not-for-profit and they do run bereavement support groups. And those groups are open to anyone who's experienced a loss regardless of the timing, which I think those are the things that as bereaved parents, if you don't get that information right away, you know, for our experience with that miscarriage, I just went online and Googled like miscarriage Mm-hmm. And that was it. WebMD. So, <laughs> WebMD. If you don't find that information or you aren't referred that information by your healthcare provider, then it's very hard to find it. Mm-hmm. Why do you think like why do you think that healthcare providers don't have that information? For the healthcare providers, I think one of the things is that the healthcare system is so big mm-hmm. that they aren't aware of it or there is a lack in education. Mm-hmm. So as we see with breech birth, the Society of Obstetricians and Gynecologists did not recommend breech birth for 10 years. Mm. And so there's a bunch of obstetricians out there who were never trained in breech birth. And I think it's the same with the care. And, and fearful. And fearful of, of breech birth. And I think it's the same with the resources for pregnancy and infant loss. Mm. I think the resources exist, but I think that they're just not getting the right training. Mm. Other thing is with the ultrasound clinic, I feel like that's also where that information should be made available. Because that's where you find out that your baby has no heartbeat. Mm -hmm. And to be sent home with nothing. We didn't even get a picture with that first ultrasound. Mm -hmm. So to be sent home from that clinic, you know, you walk out and you see all these other women who are out there and they're very pregnant. And you're just sent home. I feel like, you know, at least give them a pamphlet that says it's okay. Or like, here's some resources. Here's someone you can call and talk to. And we went home and we were just hoping maybe they were wrong. Maybe they were wrong. We went to the obstetrician. Then afterwards, we got another ultrasound done to confirm it. And by that point, the baby had degraded to the point where the picture wasn't it. So Aaron ended up having anhydramnios, which is no amniotic fluid. And then because of that, he had hypo, uh, pulmonary hypoplasia, which is when the lungs don't develop properly mm. because they didn't practice enough. Mm. Uh, can you tell me about that first loss? We were very fortunate because I got pregnant right away, but I thought, oh, this is gonna be easy, right? Like, I got pregnant right away, both of our parents hadn't experienced loss. Mm. So my twin sister had had a loss, but it was years before, and she hadn't conceived again to that point, but I thought, oh, it's not gonna be me. Mm -hmm. And so after we had our loss, then everyone said, oh, it's so common, it's one in four, you know, I've had one, this person's had one. One of my grandmothers had had multiple losses that I never knew about. One in four people have depression, but that doesn't make any better for the person having depression. No, exactly. (laughs) Yeah, the ultrasound, we found out there was no heartbeat. Mm -hmm. And so the doctor came in, told us there was no heartbeat, and then sent us home. 
And that was it. Mm-hmm. Very clinical. Very clinical. Mm-hmm. And what were you feeling? Like, what, what kind of emotions went through you? Disbelief. Yeah, disbelief. And I think also, like, crying. what are we supposed to do now? Mm-hmm. Shock. Because no one gave us, like, okay, this is how it's going to work. This is, you know, what you should do. We called our family doctor, and she had us in and said, look, I'm really sorry. Very common. We've never been back to that ultrasound clinic since. No. Right. But imagine if you were in a different city where you had less resources. Yeah. You wouldn't get that option. You wouldn't get that option. Yeah. So, and then after that, so I Googled, like, miscarriage, medication, DNC, did some research into what our options would be. So you had to Google your own options Yes. After mm-hmm. coming back from the ultrasound. Yeah. Because we weren't given the resources. We weren't given the, the resources for the options. Yeah. So your doctor just said, I'm sorry, it's common. Yeah. Like, it's, and said, it's, book an appointment. Yeah. So right. she gave us the referral for an obstetrician, and she's very compassionate, mm-hmm. but her office didn't have the resources for pregnancy loss. So when with the with your first pregnancy, when you experienced the loss at 10 weeks, um, what did you end up having to do? Like, did you have to get a... Did you have to get a DNC? Or no, so I ended up going to an obstetrician. Okay. And he gave me misoprostol, which is... Kind of a funny story. Which is, yeah, it's kind of a funny story, which is a drug that induces the miscarriage. And so with that medication, we went in, and I know he does this every day. So we went in for the appointment, and the one thing that he asked me was, do you know how to find your cervix? I was like, Why? Uh, why? And he was like, well, because you're just going to shove this medication up there. And I was like, oh, okay. And so this was the appointment to oh induce our miscarriage. And so my mom was actually with us. She came and the two of us were sitting there and just like looked at each other. Like, but I've never put my fingers in to try and find my cervix before. A lot of women haven't. So, a lot of women haven't. So it was very, I would just say it was you know, given everything that we were going through at the time, now I find it funny. At that time, it was not funny in any way. Mm-hmm. Because you're giving me drugs to start a miscarriage and then asking me if I know where my cervix is so that I can start it, which was very strange. Yeah. Yeah. And then again, no referral to any sort of counseling or any sort of support. Mm-hmm. So luckily we had my mom who was here. It was very painful. Yeah. So did it? what did the contractions feel like? So I didn't know that it felt like labor, but <laughs> it felt like labor. It was They were very strong and a lot of heavy bleeding. Mm-hmm. And so the worst part of it is it had been like that. So it started on the Saturday, the bleeding, after I took the medication on the Friday. And I thought that everything was fine by the Wednesday. And so we decided to go to Ikea, which was the first time that I'd gone out of the house. And my mom was with me, and I went to the washroom, and then all of a sudden a huge thing passed and it was what would have been our baby mm-hmm. at Ikea because with the automatic toilets with the automatic toilets because oh gosh, we just no. we just thought that you know like I need to get out and yeah. it's too crazy and and so that was traumatic in and of itself because and at that time you just got leave from work your what was it classified as no I took sick leave mm-hmm. it was sick leave yes because now, for miscarriage, you can officially qualify for disability, correct? I don't know. I believe that there was new legislation. No, not legislation. It was a human rights tribunal case, Ontario Human Rights Tribunal. Um, a lady was let go of her work because she had had a miscarriage. And couldn't come in. And couldn't come in. Pregnancy discrimination and loss discrimination is a whole other topic yeah. that I would love to get into. But yes. So they went through the human rights tribunal, and now there is... Uh, that was, I think, 2016 or 2017 yeah, so that it was done. Mm-hmm. It came in after this case. 
maybe it was 2015, I think it was around 2015, but so now there is that step of protection for women who have uh, experienced miscarriage. At least there is a step of protection in Ontario. Yeah. But imagine it's only been a year or two years, as you're mentioning. I'm gonna, I'll look into it, but... And we're actually, Ontario is actually um, leading, the charge. leading the charge on a lot of these things, a lot of these initiatives, okay. and yet it seems so archaic. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Tell me about after experiencing that loss and then conceiving again. What was that? How was that process for you? What was the decision? What was the what were the feelings going into it? Well, the timing was not ours to make. <laughs> we realized with all of these losses, you know, because you have that plan, plan, you know, and then you end up on plan like D E F. <laughs> so that was we had planned it that time of year, and that was slightly off. And then until that 10-week mark, we were quite nervous, and then... Yeah, and then I feel like pregnancy got a lot easier after that 10-week mark, because it was like, okay, we passed that mark from last time, we're good, and at 30 weeks I had some bleeding, and we went into the general hospital, but everything was fine. We found out that instead of being a girl, we had a son, which was very The ultrasound technician at 20 weeks had made a... An error. An error. <laughs> You're not having good experiences with. So, uh, no, ultrasounds have not been our our favorite things. (laughs) So, we found out at. Oh, and at the general, the ultrasound technician, she was. I was using male. uh, Female female pronouns for everything. And then she very hesitantly said, You know what you're going to have? And I said, Yeah, boy. She said, "Um, Look at this. No, you said a girl. Mm. Or a girl, sorry. A girl. And then she scant moved over the. Those are testicles. <laughs> so, and, and then she was so worried because some people like they, they lose they lose their right they lose their stuff over those kind of stuff. They've painted their whole house and they've done all these other things. We had our neighbor had given us a raggedy a raggedy and doll, and we Gabriel's blanket is pink from his grandmother, yeah. and <laughs> and it's fine. It didn't matter. Was, we didn't really care. We just thought yeah. it was funny, but he was healthy and happy, and everything was good. So oh, I had thought it was a boy all along. Yeah, you knew, you knew. Yeah. So how was how was Gabriel's labor? Uh, he was posterior, which is always fun. Mm-hmm. So because it was our first experience with labor, I didn't understand what posterior meant until he came. What now is posterior? I, posterior is the baby is facing up instead of facing down, so the head is facing up. It's also called the, sunny side up. The head is against the spine and it slows it down because the head goes slower against the spine and it doesn't move as much. So it was a very, very long labor. I ended up, I decided not to do an epidural. But I actually had to pull the resident out of the room when she came in for like the ninth time and tell her, you're not coming back in this room if you're not offered the epidural again. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Good for you. So that was good. And she was quite miffed at it and told the nurse off when the nurse went back to the nursing station. Yeah. See, it's funny because, like, to have a partner that can yeah. advocate in that moment um, makes a huge difference. It makes a huge difference. But women get, yes, asked that a lot in labor, and then suddenly it's like, well, okay, you're, you're giving me the candy, you keep offering yeah. it, so I'll just take it. Yeah. But, yeah. yeah. And so I ended up with Pitocin. Mm-hmm. Great, just be sarcastic, sarcasm. So, so hopefully this time will be a lot smoother. Kind of funny to watch. She was doing lunges and all these other things to try to break the membranes. As he was actually being delivered, Robin, there was a pitocin without an epidural. epidural. Never again. (laughs) And then the obstetrician forced her to go on her back to deliver. Yeah, so I had been laboring on my hands and my knees the whole time, which was a lot easier because of his positioning. 
And so the obstetrician that came in would only deliver on my back. Mm-hmm. Old school doctor. Old school doctor. Yeah. yeah. And it the, <laughs> the perseverance from that labor and the whole experience with that actually helped us a lot with Aaron's labor. As we so, knew to speak up. For ourselves. The system, mm-hmm. We realized the system was broken. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yet you've been through the first and then you went with Gabriel. Yeah. So, so then when Gabriel was 13 months, we decided, okay, we want them really close together. Mm-hmm. That way, you know, we get it all over with. Mm-hmm. Good. We're going to have three kids, and we're going to have them bang, 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 and it's going to be done. Mm-hmm. And as we said already, <laughs> plans plans change. Mm-hmm. So I got pregnant right away. Mm-hmm. Everything looked great. Our 12-week ultrasound, everything looked fine. We passed I was, the 10-week mark, and we were we like, the we're in the clear. Mark, and we were like, we're good. Rob's in school for nursing. I'm back at work full-time. Gabriel's in daycare. He was little. He was 13 months old. <laughs> so, you know, everything was looking good. Mm-hmm. That's the one. And as we were walking into that ultrasound, Rob said to me, I just have a really bad feeling. Mm. And I was like, what do you mean? Like, everything's fine. Everything's good. I've been feeling this baby move forever. I don't know what you're talking about. And so... Let's go to a different clinic. (laughs) (laughs) This was the clinic where we had found out that Gabriel was a girl and ended up not being a girl. Yes. A different clinic from the first pregnancy. Yeah. And so we went in for the ultrasound and... She put the jelly on, and she's starting the ultrasound, and then all of a sudden the screen is really, really dark. And so for us, that was... And she started putting question marks. Strange. I, for the first 10 minutes, I've been asking all these questions, because I'm, yeah, curious. Curious. I'm curious, yeah. and I like to know what's going on. And then she started, she stopped answering my questions, and she got very serious, and the question marks started going on the screen. And so Rob and I asked her, like, if, the, if there's something wrong, you would tell us, right? And she said, yeah, we have a doctor here, and they would, like, tell you. So we were like, okay. And so the ultrasound was supposed to be 20 minutes, and it ended up being 40 minutes. Mm-hmm. And she couldn't tell us if baby was a boy or a girl. They ended up not being able to see kidneys. They could see the adrenal glands, but instead of being a triangle on top of a kidney, they were flat. Um, because the amniotic fluid was low, mm-hmm. Um, couldn't, they couldn't see a stomach because the baby wasn't drinking and practicing drinking the, the fluids. So they mm-hmm. couldn't see a lot of the intestines. Yeah, so the way that it works is up until about 14 weeks, the mom's body produces the amniotic fluid. Mm-hmm. And then after 14 weeks, the baby's pee is what produces the amniotic mm-hmm. fluid. So the kidneys are what are producing that pee. Mm-hmm. That so, amniotic fluid. That amniotic fluid. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So without that, the baby can't practice that breathing mm-hmm. breathing or eating or eating mm-hmm. not that they so. eat much but it's just yeah a little bit of intestine stuff mm-hmm. yeah and so we left the ultrasound we didn't know we just knew that something was weird she didn't tell us so you didn't get to know no mm-hmm. no mm-hmm. and they called the midwife so we didn't know okay. we thought if something were seriously wrong we would know right away because they have a a doctor there that reads the ultrasounds immediately mm. and so she went off to work I went off to work and I went for a hike or no I went Rob for a went run for a run I went to work and I called my mom at work and said like hey we had this ultrasound they said that things were a little bit weird but they told us to come back in two weeks so my mom said I'm sure it's nothing mm. and so you called the midwife and two minutes she... later the midwife called okay while I was sitting at my desk and it's open concept office mm. and while I'm sitting there and she said I have some really bad news they weren't able to see kidneys, they weren't able to see a stomach, and this was on a Thursday. You're going to need to go to the general hospital, which is the high-risk unit, mm-hmm. so maternal fetal medicine, which is where they do follow-up ultrasounds on Monday. 
and that was it. It was. Then your colleagues drove you home. My colleagues drove me home because I was so distraught, and, and yeah, I just remember I got home and Rob was out for a run, and I called my mom, and I was just crying and crying and crying because. That's a little shock you know, to see had, her come in then. We had made it <laughs> to the twenty week mark. We were nineteen weeks, mm-hmm. so it was totally not expected. Expected. Mm-hmm. Especially because the twelve-week ultrasound had been totally fine; mm-hmm. it had been clear. And this is a common thread that we've seen with a lot of other people: is you get to this point and it just hits them like a brick wall because they weren't expecting this at all. Mm-hmm. No. Some people, mm-hmm. it's at the very end of the pregnancy, and something hits them. Mm-hmm. So then, um, on the Saturday, so we're waiting for that ultrasound. We had told all of our friends. We were, you know, super anxious, but. We were just waiting in limbo from Thursday until Monday. And on the Saturday, I had fluid loss. Mm. So because I was only 19 weeks, I wasn't able to be seen in labor and delivery. So I had to wait in the emergency room for six hours mm. with people vomiting. And Malfour. And with people vomiting. So and we went to Malfour because it's a midwife hospital. Yeah. So we were hoping to get care there. But we were just under 20 weeks. We are 19 and 5, 19 and 4. I thought this date so strange. Yeah. So we, were, so we went up at first to the labor and delivery. You know, they could do a non-stress test. They could do all these other things, yeah. right? Yeah. It'd be easy. easy It'd be easy, check. easy to check. Or there's many other tests that they have. Uh, what is it? Fetal fibronectin. Yeah. Other things like that. No, we got sent down to emerge because she didn't meet that twenty-week cutoff. And what did um, what did they think emerge was going to offer? Well, emerge, it's simply because um, early pregnancy loss is so common to get overrun in labor and a labor and delivery unit. Mm-hmm. So to meet the demand, they put them down in emerge. Mm-hmm. But for us. Mm-hmm. So we waited for six hours. There was another woman there who was bleeding, and we were told there's only one gynecological bed in labor or in the emergency room, and it's full. Mm-hmm. So you're just gonna have to wait until the gynecological bed is empty. Mm-hmm. And there's this other woman waiting, and she's had. We ended bleeding. up talking to her, and she had I think three previous losses, and was now there around 15 weeks bleeding, mm-hmm. and was also waiting for this gynecological bed, mm-hmm. and so. After six hours, yeah. I was I had been having contractions. We, we just, decided to go home. We realized, you know, what else can we do? They're not going to be able to do anything. They can't put a plug back in. They can't do all these things. Mm-hmm. The only thing we can do is go home and pray. Yeah. Goodness. And, and that's what we did. Yeah. So we ended up going home. Yeah. And on the Monday, we had our ultrasound at the general hospital. So we went in. We went into the ultrasound room. We had known already because of the fluid. So we had actually gone to see our midwife, and so she was able to test, and she could see that... No, we went to the general first. Oh, we went to the general first. Oh, no, was the general yeah. on the Monday, or was it on the Tuesday? On Monday. We saw Monday in the morning. Okay. But anyways, regardless, we ended up going into the general hospital, and we found out that, yeah, so we went for our ultrasound. We could see this little baby up there, and he was waving at us on the screen. He was so cute. He looked a lot like our son Gabriel, the same little profile. And then we finished the ultrasound, and of course they don't tell you anything in the ultrasound. So they bring us over to this little room, and the fellow comes in, who is the doctor that was reading our ultrasound. So how it works in a hospital, there's the medical student on the bottom, 
Then there's the resident. They do, I believe, it's three or four years residency in mm-hmm. obstetrics and gynecology. Mm-hmm. If they want to specialize on top of that, they do a fellowship. Mm-hmm. They do a one-year fellowship in high risk or something like that. And then after that, you become staff. Mm-hmm. So we had the fellow come in to tell us. Yeah, and so we're in this little room, and she said, I read your ultrasound. Your baby doesn't have any kidneys. Mm-hmm. This condition is not compatible with life. Mm-hmm. This and condition is not compatible with life? Yeah. That's what she said? That's what she said. Wow. And she said, if you're going to terminate, on top of everything else, I had a oh. placenta previa, which meant that the placenta was blocking. Covering the cervix. Covering the cervix. So if I were to deliver vaginally, mm-hmm. I couldn't because I would have a lot of bleeding. Mm-hmm. So I would need to terminate within the next three days. So the options were, because there was a placenta previa, they'd have to terminate within the next three days because the placenta was still small enough that they could control the bleeding. If uh, it went on and the baby was delivered early, then there was a high risk of hemorrhaging. So the chances were that she was going to have to have a C-section. Before 28 weeks, generally you have a um, you have an abdominal incision, which is up and down. So it's a vertical incision, basically across the belly button, mm-hmm. to get the baby out. And it's the old-fashioned way of doing a cesarean section, and it has significantly higher um, uh, higher risks for future pregnancies, mm-hmm. lower chance of uh, vaginal birth after a C-section, VBAC, mm-hmm. and things like that and so that wouldn't be possible to do it so that's why they recommended doing the termination right away and for the condition that uh, Aaron had uh, the termination rate um, placenta previa notwithstanding is around 95% Mm. and a lot of the people there's some people like us who chose not to terminate Mm. And then there's other people, often immigrants with no antenatal care, they come in and they're just surprised in the moment when mm-hmm. they be. Mm-hmm. And we'll talk about that after, but they're just, mm-hmm. it's a complete shocker to them when it happens. Mm-hmm. And then that's very traumatic. Yeah, so you can't tell, like with the pregnancy, besides those ultrasounds, you would never know. Mm-hmm. So in the moment when we were sitting there, we said, we need to go home, we need to think about this, mm-hmm. but... We're and the, the fellow, she wanted an answer. The like, fellow wanted, wanted an, an answer, answer right immediately. Now. And Rachel right. said, no. No, I'm not making a decision right now. And then she said, oh, she very cautiously said, okay, well, we need to know in the next three days. Which to me is huge. So, you so know. Not and many, is that policy that they have to know in three days? Or is that just something? It was because of the placenta previa. It was, okay. it was, clinical, it was a clinical uh, judgment call. Yeah. And so that to me was huge. So we went home. And we thought about it, and we talked to our parents, and, you know, we... My mom was worried about it. Yeah. Well, was, everyone was worried about it. Everyone was worried about it, but they said, you know, you need to do what's best for you, especially mm-hmm. if you know this baby isn't going to make it, and then... No judgment. No judgment. And for us, there's no judgment either. It, it totally depends on your circumstance. For us, we're very blessed that we have amazing families and friends mm-hmm. and a church community that stood behind us, mm-hmm. regardless of the decision that we made. Mm-hmm. But... After we went home, we found out that there is a perinatal hospice program at Roger Nielsen House, which is located next door to the hospital where we received our diagnosis. And the program on the there, same campus. On the same campus, the program there is for people who receive a diagnosis like us. So, if you receive a diagnosis during your pregnancy, that means your baby will either not survive the pregnancy or won't live long after birth. 
They provide you with access to a doctor, a social worker, a nurse, counseling, regardless of the decision you make. So if you decide to terminate, Mm -hmm. they will offer you the same support and counseling. After 20 weeks. After 20 weeks. Mm -hmm. As if you decide to carry forward. And it's all covered through OHIP. Mm -hmm. And they help you go through the decision process. They help you create a birth plan. Uh, they, they're they aim for a very holistic manner of care. Mm-hmm. And so you found out about this because we had friends through church who had gone oh, through a similar situation. Okay. Wow! So just by, almost by just chance. by chance. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So it was because a friend knew of these other people that had this experience, mm-hmm. and so they contacted me and told us about their experience mm-hmm. with Roger Nelson House. At first, you know, we were just completely in shock, didn't think about it, and then my mom had done a quick Google search and had found this congresswoman down in the states and her baby had been diagnosed with the same thing and they went to john hawkins university hospital and they found this treatment possible treatment so the rate of success in this is very high or no is very very low the chance of complication and pain and all these other things is very high um plus we'd have to go down to the states and so we presented it as an option. Yeah, we did all of this research on it. We, our neighbor down the street, she's a medical librarian. Yeah. She helped us do this. We found, I don't know, 15 articles. So we came in to the high-risk unit with 15 academic articles, wow. and I had a decision-making tree about all the possible options that we could do. And they had never heard of this treatment before. Mm-hmm. It was new. I ended up sending the uh, head, the staff, doctor, a seminar link later on. <laughs> she hadn't seen it before. Were they supportive of your decisions or the options you wanted to explore? So we went to this next appointment and we gave it and said we'd like to explore this option. I didn't necessarily we want it, but we want to see if it's possible to do it here. Mm-hmm. And. They went back to their office and they talked for 30 minutes behind a closed door. I don't think that's a very common occurrence. The people that a patient comes in with a stack of 15 mm-hmm. academic articles and then they go and discuss. We're vulnerable but as well very uh, assertive. Mm-hmm. So how to do it gently to us because I had used a few tactics in presenting it. May have made Rachel cry as well to try to, I said, well. You get this, you end up with a dead baby. You get this, you end up with a dead baby. So you don't have all these other... So you, what would be the harm in trying it? Mm-hmm. So I was very brutal about it mm-hmm. to try to get an emotional reaction out of them. Mm-hmm. So And got an emotional reaction because Rachel was crying as well. Right. So maybe a little on the aggressive stance, but it made... I think maybe I was a little hostile to deal with, but they had to deal with me. Mm-hmm. So they came back in and they said no. It wasn't an option for us. Mm-hmm. So it's not something that has ever been tried in Canada, mm-hmm. and it's not something that they would be trying. Mm-hmm. Right. So we decided to continue forward mm-hmm. regardless. Mm-hmm. And we told them we don't want to terminate. terminate. Mm-hmm. So we wanted to go through the perinatal hospice program at Roger Nelson. They, yeah. mm-hmm. they were very uncomfortable with that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But we pushed forward anyways, especially because of the placenta previa. Yeah. yeah. And for us, that was the best decision for us. When you when you made that decision to continue caring, Aaron, was there hope that you know he would make it? Yeah, we were hoping for a miracle. We were hoping for a miracle. We were hoping that he would live. We were just hoping that they were wrong. And every ultrasound that we went to after that, we knew 
but we were just hoping but, something yeah. would change. Yeah. And so with the perinatal hospice, though, that for us was a game changer. Mm-hmm. Having the support and the access that we had from them was amazing. We went in and we met with them. Yeah, we, we had told, an intake meeting. We had an intake meeting. We met with a doctor, nurse practitioner, nurse, social, social worker, worker, and they were phenomenal. So every, almost every meet, almost every appointment at maternal fetal medicine after that, we had one or two Roger Nielsen House staff following us. So you have a busy pediatrician or a busy nurse practitioner, and they take the time out to come to your meeting yeah. with and, that and mm-hmm. sit with you. And we had the meeting with the social worker, so she would call and check in. We could go book an appointment with her anytime to talk about the concerns that we were having, mm-hmm. the way that we were feeling. And I think the other thing, too, is that it's offered regardless of the decision that you make. So if you decide to terminate, they'll do the same thing. They'll come with you to that appointment mm-hmm. and you know they'll offer that ongoing support afterwards because quite often they're the only ones. And so anyways, the other thing to mention, we decided to continue care with our midwives, mm-hmm. yes, which I was, ask about was I think one of the best decisions we could have made. Mm-hmm. So because at maternal fetal medicine, everything is very clinical. You go in, you have your ultrasound, they do your blood pressure, and then they send you home. That's pretty much how the appointment goes. Mm-hmm. With the every midwife, two weeks. Every two weeks. With the midwife, our care was so much more holistic. It was, you know, how are you feeling emotionally? How are you doing? And they would ask about the social worker, how we were checking in with that. The midwives would just call and make sure that we were doing okay. Mm-hmm. And even though they didn't need to continue that care, they did. Mm-hmm. And so for us, with the hospital that I had to deliver in because I was high risk, they don't even have... Um, uh, they don't have birthing, I guess, birthing... They don't have practicing... Practicing rights at the hospital. Mm-hmm. And... Due to internal policy. Yeah. And that is a whole other debate. Yeah. <laughs> and so they still followed us, which was amazing. So you weren't, like, they weren't your primary mm-hmm. caregiver. It was no. joint care. It was joint care. It was joint care. Mm-hmm. Or shared care. I yeah. want to hear that um, so, yeah, people are actually willing to do joint care. Yeah, and so that joint... It should be for families. That joint care made yeah. such a difference for us as a family because when we went into those appointments, it was so much more relaxing, yeah. you know? It was about the pregnancy and how I was feeling and how I was doing. And, and so with the midwife, it was amazing. The other thing, of course, to top everything else off, Erin was breech. Mm. And so with... A breech baby who has no fluid, it means that there is very likely a chance that they will never turn. So they're stuck. They're stuck. <laughs> so with that, the fact that I was placenta previa, he was breech, there were all of these complications going on. You know, it was one thing after another. But um, around 27 weeks, yeah. we found out that he that the, the placenta had moved. The placenta had migrated enough, and it was no longer previa. So it was low at that point, but it was still, but it was no longer feel, previa. How did you feel? So we went in. So the fellows at this point were cautiously optimistic that vaginal breech birth would be possible. We go to the next appointment at what was it? Mm-hmm. At the general. Which week was it? Thirty weeks. Thirty weeks. We get a different fellow. What did he say? And he, so we said to him, look, the last ultrasound showed that it looks like the placenta moved. Mm-hmm. There's a possibility of us doing a vaginal breech birth, which for me was much better than doing the old-fashioned C-section. And we knew that we would want to have another child afterwards. Mm-hmm. Also, the time that we would have with our baby, which we didn't know was a boy at the time, the time that we would have with Aaron would be so short if he ended up living. We wanted to do a vaginal birth so that we could spend as much time with him as possible. Not being a sterile. Instead of being in a sterile environment and having... So by this point, like, you were... There was a bit of hope, but you you also... We were preparing for both. Right, Mm -hmm. you were preparing for... Exactly. Mm -hmm. 
We didn't make any end-of-life arrangements. We didn't make any end-of-life arrangements, but we didn't set up a nursery. We didn't have a car seat. We didn't do any of that preparatory work for actually bringing home a baby. Mm -hmm. We were hopeful, but we were just like, like, don't do anything. We didn't do anything because we knew likely we wouldn't be bringing a baby home. Mm -hmm. So... I think, you know, we couldn't do the funeral arrangements beforehand because it just felt too weird. Mm-hmm. I could that's, feel this that, baby. That's, that's final. That but. was that was the one thing we just couldn't do. I could feel the baby moving and kicking. And every he was still alive. Time we could see him. He was still alive. So we just couldn't do that part of it. What was that, what was that like for you to carry Aaron and feel him kicking and moving? I think and it was beautiful in many ways. I think so. I think one of the things that we tried to do was do as much stuff as possible. We so I have all these pictures... We, even with, with the placenta previa, I couldn't do too much exercise, mm-hmm. which was really crappy. But um, we tried to do as much as possible. We went to a bunch of different museums. I ate ice cream <laughs> as much as I wanted because it didn't matter. Yeah. Rob played the piano for him, and most nights that Rob would play the piano, he would move. And I think yeah. we just tried to, as hard as it was and as sad as it was, you know, especially when people approach you in the grocery store, we had a little baby, like a toddler, who wasn't even two and they said oh you're going to be really busy do you know what you're having and mm-hmm. those conversations i think were the hardest part mm-hmm. where explaining we explaining to a stranger what was going on yeah or this. just saying like oh yeah i'm going to be really busy and then just walking away mm-hmm. and then trying not to sob right. in the middle of the grocery store mm-hmm. because so, you knew that you wouldn't we likely wouldn't be taking him home it's almost like you're you're carrying life and loss at the same time yeah and it's a long drawn out grieving process yeah and it's a hard place to be in but I think for us it was more about the experience so the week he went before, canoeing yeah the week before mm-hmm. he was born we ended up going for a, a hike we went for a paddle because for us that's something that we do as a family so we just tried to give I think as much life and as much experience as we could within that time and you know do all the things with him that we would have done afterwards mm-hmm. and try and squeeze them in before mm-hmm. yeah and we prepared Gabriel as best as we could. He wasn't even two, so, you know, we... He felt the baby. He felt the baby moving. He, he got to experience as much as he could. Got to experience as much as he could. Mm-hmm. So... And that, for this pregnancy, he's asked, he's asked a few times, do we get to take this baby home? Mm-hmm. Which has been really hard, because we have family pictures at home of us together mm-hmm. with Aaron. And mm-hmm. so Gabriel met him at the hospital right after he was born, mm-hmm. when he was still alive. And he poked him in the nose, and he poked him in the eye... And so this time, because he sees those pictures and a bunch of his daycare comrades had little brothers and sisters, Mm. he was like, oh, we had a baby, but now we don't. Mm. And with this baby, is this baby coming home with us? And I think that's been one of the most challenging things about this pregnancy is trying to reassure him that, yes, this baby's coming home when it's hard to reassure myself that this baby's coming home. And carry your own fear that, you know. And explain those deep life questions. Oh, well, where is Aaron now? And then I heard him one day. What do you say when he asks, where is Aaron now? We say he's in heaven. One of the things that we will likely do, Roger Nelson House also offers a sibling bereavement group Mm -hmm. and a grandparent bereavement group. So we will likely put him into the sibling bereavement group this fall to kind of deal with... I went sometime. Or the winter to deal with this new baby, but the old baby, Mm -hmm. and try and, you know, help with those feelings and emotions. Mm -hmm. But yeah, so, so anyways, back, back to the, 30 weeks. Back to 30 weeks. So 30 weeks, we found out that the placenta had moved, likely. Mm-hmm. So we went into this appointment with a different fellow, because you see a new one every time. And so we saw this doctor, and he came in, and I said to him, okay, look, like it looks like the placenta moved. Can we get the go-ahead to do a breech birth? Mm-hmm. And quite often with babies that do not have kidneys, they're born early. So we had always prepared for an early arrival. Mm-hmm. 
And so he looked at me and he said, if you want to attempt a breach birth, you may as well have terminated. And that was a big shocker to us. Yeah. So was very sensitive. The doctor. The fellow. And so we went home. We called our midwife. We called the social worker. The social worker called us and I explained it. Yeah. We called the midwife and between our midwife and Roger Nielsen house, they wrote letters saying, hey, listen, like these are all of the reasons why they need to be having a vaginal birth. Yeah. And he was very cautious, but he gave us the go ahead for breach birth. the breach birth at 32 weeks. Mm-hmm. And, and on 36, well, at 36 weeks exactly, so Father's Day, Aaron was born. Mm-hmm. So the Saturday I had been having contractions off and on all day. And Gabriel had a long nap. Gabriel had a long, long nap, nap that he day. Like, like five until like nine. Yeah. And then it was almost the full moon and he was wired. <laughs> I was in the backyard playing with him at midnight. <laughs> and so by the time that they so she could finally went to bed, uh-huh. they went to bed at 1230 mm-hmm. and at one o'clock my contraction started. And so I spent the whole night in bed by myself having these contractions with this big full moon coming in trying to rest as much trying as to possible. rest as much as possible and trying to avoid the inevitable rob had called our doula the night before and our midwife and said like hey this is happening i was like no 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 it's fine it's fine after a posterior birth like it's gonna be days <laughs> it'll be forever and so in the morning in the morning at she's, six she's rob in labor. Was like i think you're in labor how far apart have your contractions been i was like oh five minutes denial and he's like okay i'm gonna make some phone calls so and, he made some and, calls. And she told me not to. I told him not to. And then the contraction stopped. So it's like, oh, we have lots of time. And so I told him, you know, call your parents. But like, no rush. Call the doula. It's Father's Day. So we have lots She's of time. Pancakes. Our doula was making pancakes for her family. <laughs> and so especially with Gabriel, he was like, she was with us for over 24 hours. So we were like, oh, I have, I was Oh, we have tons of time. And I had already lost my mucus plug like five days before. Mm. Just too much information. <laughs> but we knew that it was Very likely. Labor. Yeah, yes. we knew that it was likely coming. She was laboring upstairs, hands and knees. Yeah. <laughs> Gabriel decided, had been given a horsey ride by somebody a few weeks before. So he was on top of Rachel, who was laboring in active labor, riding, doing a well, horsey Rob ride. Was calling everyone. Oh she God. was like... Get off of me! <laughs> so then at 7.30, the contractions picked up. Rob called his parents. They came from Canada. And at so our, then Rob called the midwife and the doula, and the midwife was at another birth. And she was coming just to support us at the hospital, which was great. And the doula was coming as well. And so... The doula was like, we gotta go. We gotta go! So she came... She came at 9, and she saw my face, and she was like, okay. And yeah. so we got into the car. Drove two minutes, Drove whatever, two minutes to, to the, the general, general hospital. Went the wrong way through the roundabout. <laughs> she dropped us off. And mm-hmm. got told off by this guy, and then realized the guy, and then the guy realized and when I got the wheelchair for Rachel and pushed her in that it's like well, he stopped talking after that. Yeah. So we went upstairs and I was in a lot of pain. Timestamp on the doula's car was nine ten. Nine ten on the parking ticket. And we got up there and they're like, Oh, there's a woman and she's in a lot of distress and I was like, I'm not in distress, I'm in labor and my baby is going to die and then they looked at me and they're like <gasps> And so then we get into the room and I get out from the wheelchair to the bed and they go to check and I'm nine centimeters dilated. Oh. And then because it's breech birth and typically they send them to the operating room mm. for C-section. They started to try and prep me for C-section. <laughs> prep me for C-section, wow. get the line set up. And I'm like, no, we're not, 
we're doing this inter we're doing this vaginally. Yeah. So the nurses were, and then the nurses put the IVs away and they're like, Oh, okay. what just happened? Yeah, <laughs> the nurses actually went quiet. Yeah. Yes. Yes. So it's like I need laughing gas and I need it now. We try I need your tricks. <laughs> yeah. Just forceful. And so <laughs> Straightforward and forceful. Our doula came up and then like Five minutes later, our midwife arrived, and at 9.29, Aaron was born. They don't necessarily like me. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. yeah, born at 9.29. Mm-hmm. Who caught the baby? Was it the... Like, so, the Dr. Caitlin Boxhill, I think. Okay, Amanda Boxhill. Amanda Boxhill. Five pushes, and he was out. He mm-hmm. came out all by himself. All by himself. Oh, yeah. And so they were... The problem, the other issue that we had with the breach was that he was a footling breach. Mm. So one foot was up and one foot was down, which was... On the ultrasound. On the ultrasound, which was one of the main issues as well with the breech birth that they had. And so they had an ultrasound hooked up while I was in labor for those 20 minutes at the hospital. And we could actually see... You were hooked up for like two minutes. (laughs) We could actually see... So they had the ultrasound on for the last five minutes and we could actually see him pull his leg up. And so he was born with both legs up. First thing that came out were his testicles. Yeah. And so we and then a big thing of poop. Yeah. <laughs> so we didn't know if he was a boy or a girl. And I had had this feeling the whole time that he was a boy. Mm-hmm. And statistically, with this condition, it's generally boys mm-hmm. that have this condition. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, he was a boy. And for me, the moment that it hit me that he wasn't going to come home with us was right after he was born. They were holding him, and he didn't cry. Well, no, that didn't hit you necessarily. Well... I noticed that he didn't cry right away. We did skin to skin right away. Yeah. And but, we noticed... I noticed he didn't cry. Yeah. And then a couple hours later, the neighboring room, there was a cry, and that's when it hit Yeah, Rachel. and that's when I was like, oh my goodness. Mm-hmm. You know, but they held him up, and whatever, we got to see him, and he was beautiful. We held, and I just prayed, breathe, breathe, breathe. And so you he was. You see it, mm-hmm. but he was. There were little, little, little breaths. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But, He yeah. lived for 100 minutes. Yeah, so he never opened his eyes, mm-hmm. but he was beautiful. He flinched mm-hmm. with the camera. Yeah, he didn't like the camera. <laughs> we got a bunch of family shots, and Rachel yeah. and I held them. And so Rob's parents came. Because we lived so close, they came. Gabriel was wearing a T-shirt and a cloth diaper, and that was it. No shoes. He didn't have shoes. shoes. <laughs> he didn't have pants. He, he didn't was have running up and down the hospital hallway. He was running up and down the hospital like hallway. <laughs> Not quite two years old. <laughs> but he came in, and he met Aaron, and we got to hold him. And so we just held him the whole time. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it was, it was really hard. Mm-hmm. But... It was really beautiful. And it wasn't scary. I had expected it to be really scary. We had nightmares. I had nightmares beforehand. Mm -hmm. Before about the birth. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, And what it was going to be like afterwards. I was like, you know, what it. Eyes were, you know, respiratory distress. This baby going, you know, like. Yeah, and everyone had prepared us, like, oh, he might look weird, and he didn't look weird. He looked like a normal, healthy baby, and he just gradually changed color over an hour and a bit. So, So we knew. That he was on his way out, and then we turned, we, we turned on some music, music, which were songs that Rob had played the whole time that I was pregnant. And what, so did you, what did you play? They're um, worship songs from church, and yeah. so Ardula had turned one on, and he stayed with us for another 20 minutes. Mm-hmm. 20, 30 so minutes in. it was beautiful. The midwife had said, oh, he's gone, and then they checked, and they are like, no, he's still here. And so he was still with us. Yeah, with the worship and music. So, yeah. Share what it was like to hold him. And then, you know, as he reached end of life, that that was like For me, I held him when he was alive, and it was amazing. It was beautiful. After he passed, I held him, but it just, it wasn't the same. I just, I was very uncomfortable after. Yeah. About holding him. My mom held him, and like, it, it, it was okay, but I, it, 
there was a very evident change, mm. uh, more so than I imagined. Because, you know, a little baby, they're fairly limp to start with. Mm. But there was an evident change, and, yeah. yeah. Mm. So for me, it was, you know, you have all those endorphins <coughs> from the labor. And so those are still coursing through you. And so when we were holding him, it was like, you know, with Gabriel, of course, you try nursing right away, and I didn't try and get him to nurse because mm-hmm. he couldn't. Mm-hmm. But it was just trying to look at him, and, you know, you envision this baby, and when you see those ultrasounds, you don't know what they're going to look like. So it was trying to soak in as much of that, like, oh, this is who he is, and this is what he looks like, and just try and give him as warm of a welcome as we could, but knowing that he wasn't going to stay. And just hold him and touch him and rub him and just... You know, I gave him as many kisses as I could and rubbed his hair. He had beautiful strawberry blonde hair. So just try and, I don't know. It was worth it. It was worth it. It was so worth it. If Everything that... It was crappy, but if we had to do it again, I never hope we have to do it again. And I never hope anybody has to do it again. But we wouldn't change the decisions that we made. Yeah. We fought for our baby. Yeah, and I think meeting him was, you know, whether he had been alive or whether he would have passed before, which would which was a likelihood. I think just getting to see who he was and know, like, oh, this is the baby that was moving all these months, and this is what he was like. And, and if we had gone another route, we wouldn't have seen him. We no. We wouldn't have been able to hold him. No, and, and... It was huge for us. So for us, that was huge. And I think regardless of the decision you make, you know, you're always going to wonder... And now I don't have any questions. I don't have any questions of, did we make the right decision? Did we not make the right decision? You know, just holding him. I feel like in those hundred minutes, he got a lot more love than a lot of people get in a whole lifetime. He never felt pain. I think is, for all of us, we're all going to die someday. And I think that for me was the most beautiful part, knowing that, you know, he wasn't suffering. He loved, he was loved his whole life. He was loved his whole life. And so... That, I think, for me, the hardest part was giving him to the nurse at the end. Mm-hmm. And then as I mm-hmm. gave him, I heard this baby next door being born, and I heard this baby cry. And that, for me, was when it hit me that, like, oh, my goodness, because our room had been silenced. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, we're not going to get to take him home. And and it wasn't easy, easy for the healthcare practitioners either. No, no. Our d- doula, she our was in the wife. corner crying mm-hmm. at points because mm-hmm. she had to process it. Our midwife had to step out occasionally. Mm-hmm. The nurse took some time to step in and out. Mm-hmm. Like, as the healthcare practitioner, you have to take care of yourself, but you also have to give that care and you have to provide that balance. You're providing that compassionate care, mm-hmm. but you also have to accept that you have those emotions too and be able to process them and give yourself enough space to process them so that you can deliver that quality of care. I think for the support, the most important part was talking about the fact that Aaron existed. Mm-hmm. And that his existence, that he was alive and that he was a part of our family and he will always be part of our family. He was a real person. He was a real person. And And the other support that we got, so our friends did really thoughtful things, small things that made such a big difference. You know, dropping off a meal or sending a card on the six months, when six months after he passed away. Mm -hmm. um, Another group of friends got together and they planted a tree in a local park for us Mm -hmm. and put his name on a plaque with his birthday. And it's a park where we had gone a lot when I was pregnant. We still go to it. And we still go to it a lot. Yeah, so we created a run after the loss of our son, Aaron, mm-hmm. called the Butterfly Run in Ottawa Gatineau. So there was already one that was pre-existing in Belleville. Right. And we very nicely asked them if we could use their name. We franchised. And they said yes. <laughs> so and Aaron was your second. Aaron was our... <laughs> it's a baby 
your second pregnancy. Aaron was our third pregnancy. Your third pregnancy, mm-hmm. right. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yes, because you had Gabriel as your second. Gabriel as our second, and then and Aaron as our third. And so um, we came up with the Butterfly Run Ottawa Gatineau because we are very resource wealthy mm, okay. so in this town. The there are there. the resources out there. But nobody tells you. But no one tells you. Right. So if you don't know about them, then it's hard to find that. As we talked about at the beginning, it's a silent thing. Mm. People don't want to talk about it and they don't want to acknowledge it. Mm. And I think this was giving a voice to it and a voice to people who aren't comfortable sharing their stories or their experiences. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's a place where people can congregate and have community mm-hmm. and create some healing in that. It also gives us a platform where we can speak up to officials to create change. So we've used it for both of those things. And the side benefit is Roger Nielsen has, has mo- gets additional money to support the programming. Yeah. I'm really happy with how our midwife and the midwifery group stayed with us through the whole pregnancy and mm-hmm. stayed there. They came to the funeral service as well at the end. Mm. They, there's the human touch, and that's what's so strong about midwifery is it's not just clinical. They have the human touch, the holistic sense, and don't just pass the buck off to someone else. Mm. Uh, in talking about Aaron, you said, you know, like, talking about your baby, like, makes him alive. To me, Aaron is like, you know... Um, I'm going to cry because I think I'm really sensitive. I, I, I have my moon rising sign in Cancer, which makes me take emotions on really easily. <laughs> but, you know, I can see his little hand waving. I can see him. Exactly. You holding him. And I can see the love that you gave him. So, I mean, to me, he's very much alive. But I, and that's such a gift. Such a gift that... Um, you're doing for him I think it, it highlights just the amount of love that parents have for their children yeah whether and how early we have it yes, right? how early and whether you know the first year the first year and a bit I just survived I did it I got dressed and we had to because we had Gabriel so we had to keep going you didn't have a choice like you have to keep going you have to get up you have to eat you have to do all these things mm-hmm. but I think now I feel like I'm kind of living again. I feel like mm. I can see more things. And last fall, the week after the run, Rob's dad and I were outside raking our lawn, and Gabriel was there playing, and it was the end of October, and this monarch butterfly came. Mm. And he just like circled around us. And as we were going back to the car, so it was right on his what would have been his due date, this butterfly kept going around us. So he would go around Rob and Gabriel, and then he'd come back and go around me, and then go back around Rob and Gabriel, and this summer too, it's been like the summer of the butterflies for us. We've seen them everywhere. They've been all over the place. Like people who are listening can't see like Rachel and, and Rob your eyes right now, but you know, the, the emotion that both of you carry for for Aaron and, and through I think it's really important to emphasize around support for for the for yeah. the family, right? Yeah. What's what's the message you have for Aaron, I guess, as you continue this work? I think it's that regardless of how old we are, whether I'm, you know, now I'm 33 or whether I'm 90, I'll always love him. Yeah, we'll still love him. We'll still love him. Mm-hmm. And, you know, he's imprinted on our hearts forever. And I think that's the thing, rather, you know, no matter four pounds, eight ounces, mm-hmm. you know, it, it's a weight that we'll always carry with us. And some days it's a good weight and some days it's a bad weight, mm-hmm. but every day we love him. His word, my
as a lie.